Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. This week, our guest is a legend of R&B and disco and one of the great divas of all time, Gloria Gaynor. Her recordings of Never Can Say Goodbye, I Am What I Am, and I Will Survive remain all-time classics to this day. Gloria's won two Grammy Awards, first in 1980 for Best Disco Recording, and more recently in 2020 as Best Roots Gospel for her album Testimony. Gloria's start on Broadway, has made multiple television appearances, is an accomplished author, and is a member of the Dance Music Hall of Fame. This interview was recorded live at Atlantic Records in June of 2018. I've been wanting to do this class for a very long time, very excited. One of the most legendary voices of contemporary music, legendary diva, here to talk about some incredible music. Please welcome Miss Gloria Gaynor. Welcome. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> so Gloria and I sat on the New York chapter of the Recording Academy together. And um, ever since we met, I've really wanted to bring her in. So obviously your music has been part of all of our lives for mm. a very long time. Tell us how it all started. When did you discover music for the first time? You were born in New Jersey, right? I was born in Newark, New Jersey. And um, I discovered music in my home because uh, all of my family members loved music. My mother loved music. My father not only loved music, but um, was a musician and, and, and a singer. And um, my mother sang, but uh, not professionally. So there was lots of music, always lots of music in our home, all kinds of music. Do you remember specifically what was being listened to in the house? Artists, songs? A lot of Nat King Cole, Nancy Wilson, um, Gloria Lynn, um, Sarah Vaughn. Great yeah. singers. Yeah. When you think of Sarah Vaughn or Nat King Cole, mm. some of the purest vocals you will ever oh, hear. Absolutely. absolutely. When did you know that you wanted to sing? I know exactly the day. I was 13 years old, and I was standing in the hallway of my apartment building and waiting for a friend to come downstairs and play, and I was singing. I was singing Why Do Fools Fall in Love that had been recorded by Frankie Lyman. And the neighbor was coming down, and by the time she got to me, I had stopped singing, and she said, Gloria, was that you singing? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, Oh my goodness, I thought that was the radio. Wow. I thought, wow, I, I could probably do that. Wow. I could probably sing, be a singer. Yeah, I think I want to be a singer. So you were 13 when that 13 happened? 13 years old, yeah. 
And from that moment, mm -hmm. how long before you said, you know what? I'm going to try to do this. I first tried to get my family to hear me sing, but all of my brothers sang as well. How big was the family? Seven. Five boys, two girls. Younger sister, one younger brother, four older brothers who sang. So nobody wanted to hear me sing because I was a girl. <laughs> so, so I just wanted to hear someone hear me sing. Nobody would listen. Nobody heard me sing. Nobody knew I could sing. And one day, uh, some years later, I'm on my first job. I meet a girl. We become friends. I eventually become her first daughter's godmother. And she asked me once while I was on vacation to come over and babysit. I went over to babysit, and while I was there, the first day that I was there, I began to hear footsteps in the apartment above me. And I thought, if I can hear them walking, they could probably hear me singing if I sing loud enough. At that time, I just wanted someone to hear me sing. I didn't care about the applause. I didn't care about accolades. I just wanted somebody to hear me sing. The random footsteps up, random upstairs, footsteps upstairs were going to be your audience. Was going to be my audience. So I, every day for the two weeks that I babysat for her, I walked, listened to the footsteps. When they stopped, I would stop and sing. A few weeks later, my brother and I are at a movie, and on the way home from the movie, we pass by a nightclub, and I see the name of a band on the club. I said, I heard they were good. Let's go in and hear them. So we went in to hear them, and while I'm sitting there waiting for service, they're playing, the band is playing, and they're playing Save Your Love For Me by Nancy Wilson. So I'm singing it to myself. No one could hear me. But someone went up on the stage and said, ladies and gentlemen, there's a young lady in the audience. She has a great voice. If uh, you give her a round of applause, maybe we can get her up to sing a song. And I'm, uh, he's looking at me, and I'm terrified, but I'm excited, and I'm not about to give up this opportunity because it's something I've been waiting. How did he know who you were? Wait a minute. All right. <laughs> so I go up on this stage, and on the bottom of the microphone stand is, I'm wondering if they can hear it because I'm so nervous. And when they ask me what I want to sing, I say, save your love for me. I sing the song, get a standing ovation, go back to my seat. The band comes over afterwards and says, oh, my God, you were great. We would like to hear you to come and sing with us. I'm like, oh, my God. Absolutely. I would love to do that. We can get together for a few weeks and um, that'll be great. And they said, no, we need you to start tomorrow night. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. How did you know that I could sing? Well, turns out that the club owner was the one who belonged to the footsteps wow. that I'd been hearing of. Wow. And he told them about me. Wow. So that just shows that if you want to be a singer, sing for anyone who will listen, <laughs> exactly. even if it's just footsteps upstairs. Right? Yes. Amazing. Yes. yes. So without you taking the babysitting gig, for your friend, mm -hmm. and singing to the unknown footsteps, you might not be sitting here right now. Wow. Could be. Amazing. Who was the band? I don't know. <laughs> um, oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. The Soul Satisfiers. And then you started... That was the first group that I sang with, the You started Soul singing with them yes. the next night? This, the next night. Well, you see, my mother had taught us, you have to prepare for war and peacetime. Mm -hmm. You have to be like the Boy Scouts and be ready. Mm -hmm. So I had made her, because I wanted to sing. So I had her make me dresses long before I ever got an opportunity to sing. And I had a little autograph album from high school. And every time I learned a song, I would write it in that book. So by the time I went to those guys the next day, I had over 250 songs that I knew. 
I said, look, you choose any of them because I know them all. <laughs> so whatever ones you know, we're good. And we picked a repertoire and we started singing that next night and never looked back. Wow. And how long did you say stay with the, with the band? I stayed with them for about a year and a half, two years, probably close to two years. And the following week, we were international. Wow. The following week. Yeah. We went to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so disappointed. I thought I was going somewhere. I was in New York, and the next minute I was in Canada. I'm like, what? All right. Well, got, got you out of New Jersey, right? It sure did. Yeah. And how long after that was it that you signed your first record deal? Well, it was quite a few years after that, and I'm very happy for that because I got an opportunity to hone my craft, which a lot of artists today don't. I, that was in 1969. That was in 1969. And wow. Yeah, that was in 1969. And I did my first recording in 1971. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you signed mm-hmm. to MGM Records. Yes. Do you remember what that well, was? Well, no, like? I didn't sign to MGM Records first. I signed to Columbia first. Yeah. You know, it's confusing when you're Googling. Mm-hmm. Because I thought, oh, that's right. So you signed with Clive Davis. Yes. So tell us about that. Well, I was You recorded singing, one song. I recorded one song. Right. I was singing in a club, got so discovered in a club in, in here in New York. I was taken to Clive Davis by a producer, Paul Lecca. And very super famous producer. Yeah, yeah. And Clive had me do three auditions. I say he just liked my voice, because, I mean, does the president of the record company need to hear your voice three times before he decides whether or not you can sing? With, with Clive, sometimes it's 33 times. Mm. Well, he heard me, had me do three auditions, and uh, finally he signed me. Unfortunately, the following year, he left to do his own thing and left well, me he, there. He, he was fired. It was bad. Well, I, he left. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> However, he left it. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was the song that you cut for Columbia? Honeybee. He had um, Melvin and Mervyn Steele, a pair of brothers who were writers, obviously, write that for me. Got it. Yeah. So it was a one-song deal? And when he no, left- it wasn't a one-song deal. They, you know, they, they, what happened was when he left, nobody was cared about, you know, an artist that was signed by somebody that was gone. So Mm -hmm. I was just kind of hanging out there. And so Bruce Greenberg from MGM bought my contract. Got it. And at what point did you sign up with Mako Minardo and Tony Bongiovi and the Disco Corporation of America? (laughs) That was in 1978. I had earlier in the year, in March... I was performing at the Beacon Theater here in New York, and I had this skit with the band, with the background singers, that I would take the microphone by like that and whip the cord, and it would go over to the other side of the stage. They would grab it, and we did this tug of war. Well, this particular night, they grabbed the cord, but they didn't hold it. And when I went back, I fell backwards over the monitor. Jumped up, finished my show, went out to breakfast with them after the show, went to bed, went home, went to bed, woke up the next morning, paralyzed from the waist down. Oh, boy. 
and went into the hospital and was there from middle of March until July 3rd. I'll never forget that because the neck wanted to get home for the 4th of July fireworks. But while I was there, I was like, okay, the record company said they were not going to renew my contract. So now I'm thinking... Maybe my career is over. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know anything else to do. I don't have a job. I can't pay my rent. I'm okay. um, What's up? (laughs) I mean, what you going to do? So really just praying and hoping that he was going to do something and fully assured by the time I left the hospital that he was going to do something, but I didn't know what. And then I get a letter from the record company saying that they're not ending my contract. They have a new president over from England who had a success with a recording in England that he wanted to repeat in the United States and wanted me specifically to do it. So they sent me out to L.A. to meet Freddie Perrin and Dino Fakaris. And when we got out there to record this song called Substitute, perfect name for that song, I said to them, what's going to be the B-side? And they said, well, what kind of songs do you like? What do you, what do you, what do you like? I said, well, I like songs that are meaningful, that touch people's hearts, that um, have a good melody. And they said, we think you're the one, I'll never forget these words, we think you're the one we've been waiting for wow. to record this song we wrote two years ago. Well, before we do the big reveal on mm. that song... <laughs> I was telling Gloria earlier that these two new producers that she worked with, she had worked with you know, Mako and Tony and McFadden and Whitehead and, and Joel Diamond and, and a bunch of producers, Paul Lecca. Mm. But when MGM, which was the label that signed Gloria, was eventually bought by Polydor. Mm-hmm. So you ended up as a Polydor recording artist. Right. And they introduced you to Dino and Freddie. Right. Now, Freddie Perrin, for those of you who don't know, is somebody who I, as an A&R person, am completely fascinated by this man's body of work because he's not a name that is well known today when you think about, well, who creates hits and who has created hits over the last 30 or 40 years. Freddie Perrin was a guy, he's, he passed away around 15 years ago, yeah. but... He was part of a production group at Motown called The Corporation. Mm -hmm. The Corporation, ABC 123 for the Jackson 5. I want you back for the Jackson 5. I wrote these down because I couldn't believe how many of them Mm -hmm. there were. The Love You Say for the Jackson 5. It's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday for Cooley High, which Boys to Men later covered. Mm -hmm. And then... Love Machine for the Miracles, number one. Boogie Fever, number one for the Silvers. Heaven Must Be Missing an Angel for Tavares. Yvonne Elliman, number one, If I Can't Have You. Peaches and Herb, Reunited. If you are my age and you were growing up in the 1970s, this is the guy who wrote every hit song you ever heard on the radio, right? So... Back to your story, you are the one that we've been waiting for. It's not like these were new producers. This is a guy who had hit after hit after hit. Yeah, yeah. But they... But, you know, it's like God said, sit down, write this song, and hold on, I'm going to send you somebody. <laughs> so you are the one we've been waiting for. Yes. And at that point, you, were, you made a full album with them. Yes. At yes. what point did they show you this song? Well, I asked them immediately, you know, like I said, what was going to be the B-side. So they wrote the lyrics down for me. The B-side of Substitute. The B-side of Substitute. They wrote the lyrics down for me, and I read the lyrics, and I was like, what are you, nuts? You're going to put this on the B side? They said, well, that's the deal. We asked, the record company asked us to do this song, and we said we would do it if we could write the B side. So, you know, 
Yeah. I said, well, if I've got anything to do with it, it's, it's, it's going to get a chance now. They said, maybe it'll get a chance one day. I'm like, no, it's going to get a chance now. It's going to get a chance now. So we went back to the record company with the record in hand, not the record, but a cassette of it, and said, this should be the A-side. This is a hit song. And they wouldn't even listen to it. Because the they president of the record label said, substitute, substitute. was a hit in England. Exactly. It's going to be a They hit didn't here. realize it was a substitute. So did they start promoting substitute? Yes. They sent it out to the different radio stations and, and, and DJs and whatever. I and my manager and one guy who believed us would listen at the record company took it over to Studio 54 to the DJ there, Richie Kazar, and we asked him to play it. And he played it, and the audience immediately filled the dance floor. I'm like, okay, this is for real. Okay, this is happening. This is a hit record because New York audiences, I'm sorry, guys, don't immediately love anything. Okay, so if they immediately love this record, that's a hit record. And and then you went back to the record and company, and they back. still didn't they care. Still, no, they, wouldn't, they still wouldn't listen. So we gave him a stack of them. He gave them to all of his friends around New York. They began to play it. People began to request it. And then people began to request it on radio, calling radio stations asking for it, because now they want to hear it on the way to work. They want to hear it on the way home. And the radio station started calling record companies saying, where's this record we keep getting requests for? And the record company had to say, I'm sure with much chagrin, You just told the story of how you fell backwards at the Beacon Theater. Mm -hmm. Then you had to record yeah. I Will Survive. Yes. So you recorded it in a body cast. And uh, Well, it was from up, right up under my arm to below my hip. Talk about art imitating life, life imitating. I will mm -hmm. survive in a body cast. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It was, and it was one of those things that made out of that stuff that they make the cheap lawn chairs out of. <laughs> and it had three latches in the front. They, yeah, was not comfortable. You mentioned Studio but, 54. Mm -hmm. So this was a magical era. For those of us who were a little young mm. back then, New York City, mid to late 70s, dance culture, mm. disco culture, Studio 54, Paradise Garage, Larry LeVan, oh, yeah. all this stuff that we read about, those of us who didn't live it. Mm. Tell us, what was it like when you walked into Studio 54 and you saw Richie play your record? It was awesome. It was like incredible because, uh, you know, Studio 54 was a big, very, very well internationally known club. And for it to get that response that quickly, uh, something brand new was amazing to me. I mean, I kind of, I, I thought people would like it, but I never expected it to flood the dance floor within a few beats. I never expected that. So that was like magic. And at what point did you start hearing from the listeners, the audience, saying, that song, that's the story of my life that you just sang. Very quickly. 
very quickly. I mean, within a couple of months, people were coming to me, you know, talking to me about the song, writing me letters about the song. Uh, and and I, I mean, what's even more amazing to me is that to this day, there is never a place that I go to that I'm recognized that someone doesn't come to me sobbing about a story that something how this song has encouraged, uplifted, empowered them through some difficulty in their life. And so I've come to think of this song as the core of my purpose. And you've written a book or two. Mm -hmm. Well, I wrote my autobiography and then I wrote a book called We Will Survive. And that's a compilation of 40 stories from these people. Right. Family, friends, fans from around the world. Unbelievable. I had asked you earlier if you ever found out what the inspiration was for Freddie and Dino to write that song. No, unfortunately, I never did. I never did. I kind of felt that it was Dino only because he gave me two other songs that he alone had written in the same line. I'm like, get over it. Well, <laughs> God, a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, like... it's interesting when you listen to that album, the first album that you did with Freddie and Dino, Love Tracks, mm. the sound is different mm -hmm. where you can immediately hear more bass. Mm. You can immediately hear more wah-wah guitar. Mm -hmm. How did you feel where all of a sudden, you know, you're putting your music in the hands of these new producers who you hadn't worked with before, and they're immediately going to evolve your sound. Well, I knew of them it, my, myself. I knew of their history. I knew of the songs that they'd done before. I knew I was in good hands. So I didn't have a problem with whatever they did. I'm the kind of person who likes to hire people to do what they do and let them do it. Right. When you recorded that album, the Love Tracks album, you recorded it in 78? Mm-hmm. And was disco a word? When did disco start to become a word that people were saying, you know, was a good thing until it became a bad thing? No, well, it was never a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think the, the, the term disco came out, uh, started in like 70... Two or seventy-three. That's early. Yeah, yeah very early. Because so I know that because I was elected. In case you don't know this, they would listen. It's a little sidebar. <laughs> there was an argument on Facebook yesterday or day before about who was the queen of discos, and some people were saying it was Donna Summer, and of course some people were saying it was me, and. I didn't say anything. I would never, never buy into something like that. But just for the record. <laughs> just for the record. In case you want to get in on the argument. I was elected international queen of discos by the International Association of Discotech Disc Jockeys at Leisure Dan. And the ceremony was at Leisure Dan in 1975. I was given a citation by the mayor. I was given a crown. <laughs> this was official. They had to block off the streets. There was so, seriously, they had to block off the streets. There was so much traffic coming into that club. Now, someone asked me some years later, how do you feel about Donna Summer taking your crown? I said, my crown is in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't have a problem with people feeling that Donna Summer and their time was the reigning, the new reigning queen of disco. I don't have a problem with that. She was great. She did great songs. She had way more hits than I did. And she had a great voice and she's a lovely personality. And I really don't have a problem with that. But let me have mine. I'm just saying. And you and she, you were telling me earlier, were on a flight together once. Yes, we were on a flight together once. And I'm sure they were, as I said to you, they were ready to throw us off because we never shut up. <laughs> we talked the entire time across the aisle. We weren't even to seats together. We were across the aisle talking the entire flight. It was great. She's great. But you kept the crown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I kept my crown. I, by the way, I do a Donna Summer medley in my show. Wow. Which songs? Yeah. Which songs? Which songs? We do. We start with Last Dance. Heaven knows. Yeah. That's done by two of my background singers, mm-hmm. and then one background singer does um, MacArthur Park, and then I end again with Last Dance. Wow. And you said you're going to see and her musical tomorrow. Too. You're going mm-hmm. to see the Donna Summer musical. I'm going to tomorrow. see the show tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Amazing that those songs yeah. have transcended. Oh I, yeah. I would imagine Absolutely. it's inevitable that the I will survive the musical mm. will be somewhere. Yeah. But not because starring you because you told me you don't ever want to do Broadway again. Oh no, that was enough. Two weeks was quite enough. <laughs> yeah, because it looked like triage backstage at the mm-hmm. theater, right? Mm-hmm. This one had a cast around mm-hmm. his head and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Eight shows a week. No joke. So when you said disco became a thing, a term that Mm -hmm. you started remembering hearing maybe 1972, early 70s. Mm -hmm. So when you put out Never Can Say Goodbye, Mm -hmm. that was in the early 70s as well. Was that considered to be a disco song? No, it wasn't. It was R&B. It was R&B. My version was considered disco. Disco is not songs, it's, it's a kind of music. So you can adapt any song too. Because I mean, I adapted some, some uh, what do you call, um, pop or classic, classical, I don't know, what you call jazz songs to disco music, like mm-hmm. As Time Goes By, mm-hmm. and I've Got You Under My Skin, and you know. You know, with your evergreen copyright. Yes, exactly. With an evergreen copyright, you should be able to do any arrangement, mm-hmm. and the song is still going to be a gorgeous song. Right. So with Never Can Say Goodbye, that was originally a hit for the Jackson 5. Right. Written by Clifton Davis, the actor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I read that Billboard Magazine's very first dance-slash-disco chart ever mm-hmm. that they ever published, the first one, that was the number one song. That was it. How about that? Not a bad place to start. I heard, thank you, I heard, don't remember now if I read this or not, but I heard that Never Can Say Goodbye was the first disco record ever to be played on AM radio. Makes sense. I mean, back then Mm -hmm. it was, that was 70, what year was Never Can Say Goodbye? 72? Mm, 71. 71. 72. No, you're right, 72. Barry yeah. White was probably getting played at the same time. Mm-hmm, you yeah. know, so soul records, but with a groove to them, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Something else that I found fascinating is that your first album, 
you know, this is in the early days of when mm-hmm. disco is being defined mm-hmm. as a genre. Your first album had the first three songs, not only your first album, but the next album and the third mm-hmm. album. Mm-hmm. They were seamlessly integrated into 19-minute medleys. Right. And you work with Tom Moulton. Yes, and he did that. Legendary. Yeah. The guy who is, cre- who is credited with creating the art of the remix. Mm-hmm. So the first three songs seamlessly integrated into a 19-minute danceable medley. Was that unique? Were you the first one to do that? Yeah. Amazing. Yep. So when you would go to a Studio 54, mm-hmm. easy for the DJ because he just puts the record down yeah. and he can come back in 20 minutes and the same song is still But my, my idea was to do that for the radio DJs because they would put my record on and they can get out of that little booth. Right. Okay, so I got more airplay. Right. That's yeah. what I was looking for. Right, exactly. They can go have a sandwich, mm-hmm. come back. And so the word disco, you know, obviously it's a loaded word. Mm. But for you, it was nothing but a joyous time. And a, and a it was a great time. time. It was a wonderful time. And as I said to you earlier, what no one seems to have recognized or, or have been willing to say if they did recognize it is that disco music is the only music in the history of music ever to bring together people from every nationality, race, creed, color, and age group. No other music can claim that. And still to this day, there was only one Grammy Award ever given out for best Hmm. disco recording. Guess who won it? (laughs) Congratulations to you. Keep your Grammy. Thank you. Again. Hopefully you keep your Grammy in a more prominent place than your crown. It's on my piano. Good. Okay. Yes. But amazing. 1980, best disco recording, I Will Survive, and they never gave the award out ever because mm. your song was too good. They couldn't mm. follow it up to yeah. anybody else. The accolades that I Will Survive have received, mm. a Grammy, one of Rolling Stone's top 500 songs of all time, one of Billboard's top 100, hot 100 songs of all time, and number one on VH1's greatest dance songs of all time. Not bad for, Not bad. you know, a song that the guy said, we've been waiting for you. They probably knew all this, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. And do you still enjoy singing that song? Oh, that is my favorite song to sing in the show. It still is. I love singing that song because I'm an artist who sings for my audience. And that audience Every audience wants to hear, are waiting to hear that song. They lose it. And when I sing that, I love it. Every minute of it. What's incredible to me is that that song was recorded in 78. Mm-hmm. We're now in 2018. Mm. 40 years ago, 40 years later, rather, mm. the message of the song is yeah. still as important as it was okay. the day you sang it. Oh, yeah. And I would imagine that every day somebody hears that song for the first time Mm -hmm. and says, that's my song. Yeah. When they weren't even alive when you recorded it. I know. It is amazing. But the song celebrates the tenacity of the human spirit. And I think that is what keeps it going. And you are are the messenger Mm. preaching that message Mm. of empowerment Mm -hmm. and optimism Mm -hmm. that at your lowest low yeah you You want to hear that you need something that's gonna lift you up and it does does that so 
After that, you recorded an album for Atlantic mm -hmm. Records, which mm -hmm. we, where we are today, 1982. You have any yeah. memories of working with Atlantic? I remember that it was the first time that I was given a, a, like 40 songs to choose from. And I did that. And that was the first time that uh, one of my songs was put on an album and I thought it should be a single, but they didn't. You're a songwriter as well. We haven't talked about that. Right, when did you start right. writing songs? I started writing, um, wow. I started writing probably 1968, 1967, 1968. I was, I was with um, Johnny Nash. Johnny Nash. Johnny Nash. I can see clearly I can now, see Johnny. clearly now Johnny Nash. And so I started writing with his team. Oh, you were singing with him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did he ever record any of your songs or sing it? Yes, he recorded the song, which was actually my very first, very first recording. Wow. That did zip. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and rightfully so, it was called She'll Be Sorry. still write songs? Oh, yeah. All the time? Yeah, all the time. The last song that I wrote is, I think, the greatest song I've ever written. What's the name of it? I wrote it in like five minutes. It's called Please Let Me Show You. Do you want to hear the words? Please. This is words for everyone to live by. It says, I've known you forever, how you'd look and who you'd be and just how much you would accept in a plan to follow me. I looked across eternity and charted every course. Your every test can mean success if you'll remember I'm your source. Please let me show you the life that you can have from today. Please let me show you how you can be victorious come what may. Just listen and obey. If you will answer my call, your life can be the greatest adventure of them all. You see, I know what makes you happy, what you like, and what you fear. But I'm strong in your weakness. You must know I'm always near. I gave you attributes and talents to give you purpose, to give you worth. See, you've been somebody powerful since I ordained your birth. Please let me show you. You'll have so many good times. The hard times will seem few, but I'll let you have some troubles to keep pride from ruling you. I'll take you through the valleys and over mountaintops, and the view from there will thrill you. So I plan some scheduled stops. Please, let me show you. Wow. Glory. Thank you. Have you recorded that song? Yes. Can we hear it? It's on uh, iTunes. Great. Yeah. So... Something to think about later when you go back and you want to listen to Gloria's catalog, please let me show you. Please let me show you the life that you can have from today. Please let me show you how you can be victorious. Come what may, just listen and obey. If you're
We talk a lot about Broadway here, mm-hmm. and you recorded an anthem from La Caja Fall mm-hmm. called I Am What I Am. Right. Do you remember, you know, I Am What I Am, I remember um, going out and buying that, the 12-inch mm. version of that record on vinyl um, back when it was released in the 80s. The What struck me, you know, thinking about it is I Am What I Am, like I Will Survive, is a declaration of independence, a declaration of empowerment. Do you remember mm-hmm. the first time you heard that song? Yes. Um, Joel Diamond, who was a producer, called me over to his office, and I went. He said he had something for me to hear, and he played on his piano the song I Am What I Am. He had gone to see the show, La Caja Fall, and it was the high number in the show, and he played it for me, played his version of it, and said, what do you think? Uh, do we do this disco? And I was like, okay, let's hear it. So he played what he intended to do, and I said, that sounds great. I love it. I love the song. Let's do it. It's Is that something you still perform as well? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just did it about three weeks ago um, at a show I did in Seattle. So have you always been attracted to songs about empowerment? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with five brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so you were inducted into the Dance Music Hall of Fame in 2005. Mm-hmm. In 2016, your recording of I Will Survive was, in, was itself inducted into the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. Right. Which they don't do a lot. No, that so was that, great. What was that night like? That was awesome because I not only was inducted in the afternoon, but I did a, a, um, a, a symposium. Uh, I, I was inducted that morning. I did a symposium that afternoon and a show that night. So it was a full day, and it was great. By the way, the speech is on uh, YouTube. Okay, you got homework. Yeah, yeah. So you've written books. Mm-hmm. You've performed on Broadway. Mm-hmm. You've acted on TV. Mm-hmm. And you've sold millions and millions of records. Mm-hmm. Have you accomplished everything that you've set out to do? Mm-mm. The little <laughs> <laughs> do tell. Uh, well, I have a gospel album coming up, and uh, I had a, I, I recorded a gospel album before, but I did it myself, and I, you know, released it myself, and it didn't do anything. This next album, I'm really hoping that it gets to be more widely heard. Because I want the message to be widely heard. I'm ready to give this record away because I really want, I really want it to be and heard. And you collaborated with some cre- I collaborated with some awesome, awesome. Yolanda Adams. Yes. Bart Millard. Yes. Shannon Sanders. Mm-hmm. Christopher Stevens. Yeah. Some incredible CCM contemporary oh, yeah. Christian yeah. talent. Talk about Great. your upcoming documentary. Well, that is going to be released uh, hopefully at around the same time as the album. And it's going to be uh, from my childhood to current times, telling, you know, about my life, all the things that you've heard here and and all the things that you haven't heard here. It's already been filmed? Is it finished? No, it isn't finished. We're going to do, we started backwards. So now next week, in fact, starting tomorrow, we're doing my past. 
my childhood. Great. Something to look forward to. Yeah. So as someone who's celebrating close to 50 years Mm. in... I don't know how that's possible, but I'm only 35. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Any words of wisdom for aspiring musicians? Oof. Lots of words of wisdom. In fact, I'm writing a book that I'm calling Food for Thought because that's exactly what it is. And it's giving what I consider wisdom, but I'm just calling it food for thought just in case somebody else doesn't think it's wisdom. (laughs) Covering my bases. (laughs) You know, it's just like sounding really minor, uh, basic, simple, but the truth of the matter is we really need to learn to appreciate and be ourselves. Just be you are, because you make a great you, but you make an awful me. (laughs) <laughs> and it just doesn't work. So be yourself, surround yourself with people who can a few years from now look back and say, I knew you when, and be pleased to say that. People who you can trust, people who will tell you the truth, people who love you enough to tell you the truth even if it makes you hate them. That's real love. And you need people who love you. You need to form Peaceful, you know, life is only about relationships. And if you don't have peaceful, this is in the book, if you don't have peaceful, harmonious, equitable relationships, you don't have a life. So that's your first order of business. And those are the people that you want to surround yourself with and and, and listen to. People who really care about you and are going to tell you the truth. Right? Words to live by. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your wisdom with us. Everybody, Gloria Gaynor. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Gloria Gaynor for joining us this week on Rock and Roll High School. You can visit her website, GloriaGaynor.com, to follow what she's up to lately, including some select tour dates this fall. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on.